There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Light at the end of the tunnel is the COVID-19 vaccine set to be rolled out free of charge. But when can we expect it? What other strategies are in the government arsenal as the pandemic puts a hole in the public finances? Green Party leader and Minister for Transport, Environment, Climate and Communications, Eamon Ryan, joins us in studio. Greater powers recommended for Gardaí to tackle white-collar crime. Virgin Media's crime correspondent, Sarah O'Connor, has the details. Student nurses betrayed as motion on pay is voted down. We'll have reaction. And Zara King looks at nine months of Ireland under lockdown. Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. Let's start this evening with the greater powers for Gardaí, which have been recommended to tackle fraud and corruption. Virgin Media's crime and courts correspondent, Sarah O'Connor, joins us now. Sarah, this is not the first time I've heard this suggestion be made. Tell us about this latest report. Who commissioned it and why? Yes, Matt. Well, this review was carried out by the former Director of Public Prosecutions, James Hamilton, commissioned by the government to enhance our capabilities here to combat economic crime and corruption. It runs to 154 pages. There are 25 recommendations uh, recommending changes to existing structures, to legislation, uh, to resourcing. And James Hamilton puts it into context. He says, we're a relatively small country with a population of 5 million, uh, but yet we have the fifth largest financial services sector uh, in Europe and he says it cannot be emphasised enough uh, how vulnerable those institutions are in the face of rising levels of uh, economic crime and uh, with that in mind he has recommended uh, legislation to be introduced to uh, enable the Gardaí to detain suspects for longer, to demand passwords off them uh, in relation to uh, their various uh, devices and uh, the review So, for example, the review group recommends extending the provisions of Section 50 of the Criminal Justice Act to enable a suspect to be detained for guard the questioning for a maximum of seven days instead of 24 hours under Section 4. And the report also recommends that the Criminal Justice Corruption uh, Offences Act uh, be amended to allow Gardaí to demand passwords uh, from suspects for their electronic devices. Does this report give any indication of just how serious the extent of what we call white-collar crime is in Ireland at present. Yes, uh, it, it does go into it a little bit. The Minister for Justice has said that she has set up a cross-party government action group uh, to take into account what James Hamilton has recommended. And here's what she had to say about it earlier. 
is he's highlighted a number of things and, and he's very clearly set out that as a country uh, we might be small with five million people but we have a massive financial services sector, we have a huge um, I suppose chance where there, there can be fraud that takes place, economic crime um, and we need to make sure that every effort is made to prevent that from happening and that we protect people, that we protect institutions and businesses. He has highlighted um, as part of maybe three strands within this, there needs to be structural change, there needs to be additional resources and one of them is the Garden National Crime Economic Bureau, but also new legislative change. Um, I'm pleased to say that some of the recommendations that he've made, he's made are already in train, and particularly when it comes to supporting um, the Gardaí, supporting the National Economic Crime Bureau, there are competitions happening at this very moment for positions to be filled so that we can bulk up that uh, team essentially there. Sarah, again, I don't know how many times over the years I've heard about promises about increasing what used to be the Guard of Fraud Squad's resources, now the Economic Crime Bureau, and also the Director of the Office of Corporate Enforcement. So what is new is going to be given in relation to resources? Well, what James Hamilton says that uh, resourcing has been a major problem, and he specifically refers to the Guard, the National Economic uh, Crime Bureau. It says, he says that uh, this has impacted its ability to carry out its work. You heard the minister there saying that they're recruiting at the moment to bulk up the numbers of the Guard, the National Economic Crime Bureau. But in reality, at the moment, they're more understaffed than they were, as you say, in the very similar units uh, 30 years ago. At the moment, they have 50 officers of varying ranks. They're expecting around 13 sergeants soon and then 53 officers of Garda rank over the coming year. It's not clear whether uh, this is going to be enough uh, for them um, but it, we, it remains to be seen whether the Minister is going to implement this plan. Indeed and to see whether they get all the forensic accountants and computer specialists that they need. Sarah thank you very much for being with us on the Tonight Show. And now we're joined by the Green Party leader, Eamon Ryan. Minister, thank you very much for joining us. The first thing I want to ask you about is vaccines. And we have the Vaccine Task Force due to give a report on the 11th of December. But what are your ambitions for a quick and effective rollout of a vaccination plan? It has to be effective. And I don't think we should rush it that we might lose public confidence or make any mistakes. And I think we won't. It'll be done as part of the European process. So we'll have this report from our task force next Friday, or Friday week, as you say. Um, we're waiting for the European Medicines Agency to give their all clear. We have agreements with six different vaccine companies, lots of them very similar. A lot of them will require, will require two injections, probably about two or three weeks apart. Um, so you need to get the organisation of that right. That's a huge logistics exercise, making sure that the people come back in the right time. Um, and the more people that get take it, the more secure we will all be. So getting it right, getting public confidence in it, making sure that we have all the logistics, all the IT systems, all the health systems in place is going to be key. Yeah, how much confidence do you have in that, though, particularly as we've been hearing, and Kingston Mills said it to us on the programme last night, about shortcomings in the IT system in healthcare anyway. Is that not going to hinder, perhaps, your ability to get this vaccine rolled out effectively and efficiently? It is, but I think if you look at how our healthcare system has operated in the last year, they've actually stepped up and, and introduced new IT systems that weren't in existence. Like so much else in society, we've adapted so quickly. 
Uh, and I think we've actually shown we can do that. And, and the health service, and it won't be just the health service, it'll be the Department of Social Protection as well, and the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, and, and every facet of government, and local government, and other agencies as needs be. Um, but we can do this, Matt. We have proven ourselves as a country capable in how we manage the... And you wouldn't be... Com com complacent and uh, if we make mistakes we'll have to very quickly adjust but I'm confident our people can do it well we've shown throughout this crisis our health system particularly that they're well up to the task so I think we will we will be able to do it of course we're in a situation where we have to wait and we're now gone to level three from level five how comfortable are you personally with the decision to reduce to lower level of restrictions over the next month uh, and how do you expect people to behave when given the, the greater freedoms I think they'll behave with a certain amount of caution. I, I think I'm even just watching on the streets, you know, in terms of, you know, there hasn't been a rush back into town from what I see. You know, people, I think, are going to be rightly nervous. And I think, yes, there will be the opportunity to meet friends in a way that there maybe wasn't two or three weeks ago. And yes, we will have a Christmas where families get back together. And I think that's right and appropriate. But I don't think we're going to go mad as a country. Even when the restaurants and pubs, the food pubs open tomorrow night? There may be some individuals or some instances, uh, but the vast majority of Irish people, I think, have given a lot in the last nine months to avoid it getting a runaway uh, transmission of the virus. So I don't think just ourselves collectively are not going to do that. Um, I think it was the right decision. It was the right decision, and I was reluctant at first to go into the level five, but I think in hindsight it proved to be the right you decision. You were reluctant, so what persuaded you to go for it? What persuaded me at the moment, actually, at that time, I think we were looking at the Belgian government and the sense that they were losing con con control. And that loss of control when it happens, control over your health system particularly, is a place you don't want to go. So it was to avoid that that we made the call. Does that suggest that many decisions are driven by fear, driven no. by fear of adverse consequences? Yes, but you, that's a valid fear. The, the consequence of not having con control of your health system and loss of life from that is a very valid fear. But I think similarly, six weeks on into it, when we came and looked at the analysis, and we'd looked, we'd looked at some fairly detailed analysis, where, where the infection's coming, what was the, the uh, response, I think it was absolutely right to go back to Do level three. Do you not three. have a fear of the loss of economic control, given particularly your own experience of having been part of the government a decade ago, which lost control of the public finances? Is there not a fear that if you go into this situation of further lockdowns in the future, many people fear there may have to be another one in January or February, that we will lose control of our economy? I, I'd have another experience going back that would inform me. I lost my job back in the 80s. You remember how hard that was at that time. I spent some time on the dole learning from that. We do not want our, our people to go through that. So actually, yes, you have to balance economic interests. And actually, yes, there are interests of mental health and well-being and the need to get, get all our people back to, back to work. So that's why I think what I was saying a few weeks ago, before we even went to this new level, that I think early in the new year, one of the things I'd like to see is that we do start going back to work, even if it's one day a week, in a safe and very con controlled environment. I think that's important for people's mental health. One of the difficulties, I mean, there's been a lot of gain about being able to work from home and being able to, uh, to do that effectively. But there's also a need, I think particularly for a lot of younger people, for the chance to go back in, meet colleagues, learn, uh, get involved in training and other ways where you're actually in the office. And I think that's one of the things I'd like to see But what's doing. more likely, that or that we'll have a second lockdown? 
a third lockdown. I think me. it's more likely that we will be able to manage this. I give another example, if I can, just to mention that whole well-being an approach. I think our third level colleges, similarly, will be able to start reintroducing some class experience in college, tutorials, small numbers of people, ventilated rooms, keep the windows open, keep it safe. We can do that. And I think that's similarly important. It's not just people in work, but I think those particularly younger students, they should have the right to be able to do it. And I, can I give you one of the reasons why I'm confident in that? In making the decision the week before last, one of the analysts presented to me really kind of stood out. Our secondary schools have been spectacularly good in terms of actually managing the coronavirus. It's been really tough for them. Like, it's no fun wearing a mask all day. It's no fun for teachers in terms of, you know, the whole restrictions and everything that, that comes with it. But actually, in, in the analysis that was presented to us, our secondary schools stood out as having done really well. So that gives me confidence. We can do this. We are good as a country when we get together, organise, coordinate. And, and that makes me think we won't, that we have the chance of avoiding a further lockdown just by managing things the way we can. OK, but even in advance of mass vaccination. What other things would you hope can we open up next year? We have, for example, cinemas opening this weekend, but theatres can't. In the UK, they're allowing small crowds back to sports fixtures and concerts. I mean, can you see a future in 2021 where those things will happen? A lot of concerts have been advertised. Are we going to have to wait until the end of the year? I think when it comes to big sports, sports fixtures, crowd in the, you know, in the, on the stand or, or at a concert, I'll be honest, I think that's more uh, that's probably more likely in, a, in, in an environment where the vaccine is starting to work. But I do think we can start opening theatres. I think we actually need to, because I think it's part of... The, it can be done in a very safe way, and it's a part of, part of that well-being, that sense of cultural expression. So um, we, we agreed uh, in moving back to level three that the key first thing was getting back to that stage in a coordinated way, getting our shops open, getting, getting uh, restaurants back. Uh, doing it in this stage way, I, I think, is appropriate. I think we're learning as we go uh, each time. Uh, I don't think it's likely that we would see shops close again, even if there was more restrictions, because I think they can be kept open safely. OK, you mentioned earlier the performance of the health services, and within that, the student nurses and student midwives have played a major part. But last night, you were part of a government which voted down an idea to actually pay these people for the work that they're doing in the first, second and third year of their education when they are doing practical needed work in hospitals. Why did you do that? They've done a superb job, like everyone else has said in the health system, and they were paid when they went in and worked in, the, in that way as healthcare assistants. And yes, the government is recognising that some of them, one of the real issues that the nurses' union had raised, validly, was that they had lost the ability to work in other settings because of COVID. And what the government decided last week, agreed, is we will actually apply the POP payments to those students, as we have in other areas, so that they will be compensated for any loss of work that they've actually seen. And That's second, loss of other work on top of the work they're doing in the hospitals. Why not pay them for work that they're doing in hospitals where they're often filling in, doing practical work that isn't being done by other nurses? Oh, well, if, they were, if that was the case, then they definitely should. But that isn't the case in most of the training situations. But what we did say, government has again said, is that we would look at the allowances and look at increasing those for student nurses for the likes of covering their, their housing costs and, and transport costs. The way that has to be done, is being done, is sitting down with the workers, with the unions, and as a part of an overall a a a agreement, work that through. That's where we're in the middle of that, as well as the nursing, nursing staff we're looking at the moment. There's a wider pay agreement that we have to agree. And the way it works best in this country is when we do work with all the unions, 
together in a partnership approach and get agreement in that way rather than necessarily voted through on the door. Do you think is it fair to student nurses who are, they say, effectively working not to pay them for the work? For example, apprentices are working under supervision and they're the amount of work that they do increases over time as they learn, but they get paid for it. Why should nurses be different? The nurses shouldn't be. They, they do get paid in certain circumstances. In, in their fourth, fourth year. year. Exactly. But they should not be. There should not be situations, as you say, where they're doing work, where it's not part of the training, where they're not supervised, where they're not actually standing in and getting real training. So if that was the case, no, that shouldn't happen and they should be paid. But 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 that, uh, that I'm told, isn't the, the, the uh, common situation. And what we have said, though, is that we will uh, increase those allowances or sit down with the nursing unions and try and agree that. OK, we will be moving on to that again later with other guests. So I want to ask you a little bit about the Greens in government. Are you at this stage becoming almost marginalised, even though you have three members in Cabinet, that this has been seen very much to be a Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil coalition and you're there almost as the mudguard for the two of them? No, because this government has three key tasks. And we're, and we're interested in all and involved in all three of them. It is reforming and getting our health service through this crisis period, and we're centrally involved in that. It is tackling the housing crisis. That's the key second objective of government, and we're centrally involved in that. And it is actually about getting good planning, which our party has always been good at. But thirdly and critically, it's about delivering a green re recovery, about tackling climate change, and we're centrally involved in that across the seven ministries we have. And that actually... Brings us into, I believe, a, a shape to this government which is actually about a just transition. It is about social pro progress. We were centrally involved. The key uh, development in this government in the last six months was the framing of that budget, which was a quintessentially green budget, which was demonstrably socially just, was shown by the ESRI and others to actually, we've made significant radical changes to our energy system, our transport system, our housing policies and others, and done it in a way which protects that remote, those that are most vulnerable. Well, I'll give you one thing that, that was, was green... in that budget, which I think has upset some Green Party members. Increased money for the greyhound racing industry, for example. It's starting to look like you're being outflanked by the opposition, that Holly Kearns and the Social Democrats launches a campaign against the greyhound industry, and there's the Green Party in government, which you might have expected for animal welfare rights to agree with that position, mm. bolstering the status quo. Two million. We got a quarter... 19 million in total, yeah, a 2 million, million increase. increase. And there was a 250 million investment in retrofitting, targeting those in social so housing and low income housing. There was 360 million match allocated for active travel, which we've been campaigning for years. We're so now you're at, sacrificing the dogs. We also got some 250 million for investing in nature, in restoring our bogs, in paying farmers better for helping... Re restore nature. Yes, you don't get everything in government. You have to sometimes, other parties, they have a particular priority. You have to acknowledge that you work with people in government. But that budget was a, the greenest. My colleagues across Europe are looking over and saying, my God almighty, you have an incredibly green programme for government. Now you've probably one of the greenest budgets Do you think your voters actually seen. understand and appreciate that? Only if we deliver over time. Our job over the next three to four years is spend that money wisely and improve the quality of their lives. And they see jobs coming out of this. They see local environment improving. They see Ireland starting to have a, a restored nature, cleaner air, cleaner water, which actually improves their health. Then I think they will. And, and I'm confident that will happen. How would you describe your relationship with Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar? Are you the mediator between the two of them? No, I, um, we work well together, is my experience. 
they're straight and capable. And, um, and yeah. I, How do I you feel when Leo Varadkar seems to preempt government decisions with public comments about things that are going to be announced? I don't get so obsessed with public comments, to be honest. I'm more interested in the practicalities of government and making things happen. And I'd also say, at this particular time, the reason I say it's a good working relationship is that we have a common cause. We're in the middle of an incredible crisis. We have to work well together. It's our duty, I think, on the public interest to actually not to get caught up in the latest row on, on, online or or. or or whatever, but to keep the heads but down. Does it worry you that, people. as a veteran of the Fianna Fáil Green government that went out of office in 2011, that you did that in the national interest back then, and that you got no thanks for it, and didn't get an, a decade of being able to bring in green agendas? Well, here we are now. We've never been stronger in numbers and in, in representation. And I think that maybe shows a lesson that if you're in politics, you're in it to achieve long-term objectives. You're not just there to save your own seat. You're there to actually change the way, change the world for the better, change your country, change your community for the better. I think that's the focus. If your focus is, can I hold on to my seat, you're missing the real picture. OK, Green Party leader Eamon Ryan, thank you very much for being with us here on The Tonight Show. After the break, we'll have reaction as the motion to pay for student nurses has been voted down. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome back. Well, last night the government voted down a motion to reinstate pay for student nurses and midwives. Megan Crowley is a student nurse who joins us on Skype. Megan, if I can start, as a student nurse, are you watching what's going on or are you actively working under supervision? Um, I'm luckily enough not working at the moment. Um, I am currently due to start my internship in January. I'm a final year student. Um, but I am very much aware of what's going on and I'm really, really not happy, very upset, very disappointed. But honestly, I'm not really surprised. I feel like a lot of us kind of saw it coming, but we didn't want to have any false hope or anything like that. But we are very, very disappointed with the, the outcome of last night's vote. OK, what sort of work would you expect to be doing as a student nurse that you believe you should be paid for? For myself, going back into placement, I will be working effectively as a, a registered nurse. Now, I will have the title of an intern nurse, but we get our own caseload of six patients. 
we do everything for them under supervision we have we do the medication and that but the rest of the stuff when it comes to washes when it comes to their observations when it comes to liaison with the doctors for them uh, the social work, any of the multi multidisciplinary team uh, referrals that need to be sent. We do majority of their work um, and the nurses are there just to sign off um, and to do the medications because we're not qualified to do the medications until we have our PIN. But in the fourth year of being a student nurse, you are paid, aren't you? We are, yeah. We're paid um, starting in January. But the fact, um, I just want to actually make a point about the Fianna Fáil, uh, statement that was made, I think it was today, um, saying that once you're um, in your internship, that you are paid for the real work that you, de you do um, that wouldn't be done if we weren't there. And I just think that's a really, really disappointing and insulting statement because that suggests to me that the work that I've done over the last three and a half years isn't real work which is absolutely not true. We are not observers. We don't stand and watch what the nurses do. We are very much participants and we are hands-on when it comes to patient care. We have, Like I said, we have our own caseload. And especially now with COVID, it's made things a lot more difficult with staff shortages and the fact that so many staff have gotten sick because of COVID. We've had to fill in those, those gaps. What do you say, though, to politicians who were saying today that when you sign up to do your nursing degree, you know this is part of the deal. You know that you don't get paid in the first three years and that you do get paid in your final year when you've developed the experience through your education. Yeah, I understand that, but that doesn't make it any easier. And I just think it's about time things changed because the system has been under undue pressure since before COVID was even a thing. And now that COVID is here, it's even more pressure. It's unthinkable, it's unbearable, and it's very, very stressful for all students, um, both midwives and student nurses. But um, I think that the fact that they can happily vote no and say, oh, look, we'll just clap for them and say, like, well done, we appreciate your work and not pay them anything when we are literally working our heart out and um, we do 35 hour weeks like I think I've done maybe 45 or 50 hours uh, or 50 weeks sorry of placement over the last three and a half years and we've got nothing for it and I know there's this thing going around to say people get 50 euro allowance for travel or accommodation but I know personally I've never seen 50 euro we are told that we get 20 euro um, allowance for travel which is 20 euro a week we don't get that every year or every year we get it every second year and i haven't received my travel allowance for the last uh i think it's 27 weeks of placement that i've done i haven't received any money from the government for that and the 20 euro is to cover accommodation when i'm lucky enough that i live at home and i can commute but my commute costs 20 euro per day and they're only giving us 20 euro per week and we okay. still have to buy food and you know, sustain, survive and sustain ourselves to be able to go to placement. How, I don't understand how they think that we're going to be able to care for patients if we can't care for ourselves and we can't care for ourselves if we're not earning a wage. Um, it's just not sustainable and it's just ridiculous. Thank you very much, Megan Crowley, for joining us on The Tonight Show. Thank you. And we're joined now by Paul Murphy, the RISE TD, and by Fine Gael Senator Barry Ward. Barry, is this another own goal by the government that you have a group of people who are popular with the public for the work that they do, and here's the government in denying them money looking cheap and cold? 
Well, it's right that they are popular and they've, they've earned that popularity through hard work and supporting all of us. And we all owe a, a debt of gratitude to... We not owe a debt of money rather than a debt of gratitude. Yeah, that too. And, you know, I, I think it, the circumstance, I, I'm, I'm not a member of the Dawes. I, I didn't have a vote in that. And I'm, I'm not sure um, exactly what's behind it. But I mean, I think during COVID, what happened was that they put in place a payment as healthcare workers. They designated student nurses as um, healthcare workers and they got paid that way. Um, and COVID think, hasn't gone away, you know. No, it hasn't, there and which we'll is why for the next six to nine months at yeah, least. Absolutely, and uh, we will continue to rely on nurses and student nurses as well, particularly those in the later years of their training with the experience. And I, I listened to what Megan had to say there. I can hear the upset and the frustration in her voice, and I sympathise with her. I really look forward to the government finding a way out of this. Um, I know the vote took place in the door this this week, and I hope we can find a solution to so this. Find out, how do you mean find well, a way out of it? I, th I think we, we need to deal with this issue, and uh, it's not clear at this juncture how we're going to do that. But I know that there is a great concern within the government that we're, we're going to have to address this and deal with it. I'm just not sure what the answer to that is yet. I'm not a member of the government. Um, but uh, I think it's important that we recognise the work that's being done. There are payments in place. As, as you've mentioned in the interview yourself, there is a payment. Uh, it's about €22,000, depending on what kind of nursing you're doing in the last year of training, the fourth year of training. Um, so that is there already. But for those working in the healthcare service, as Megan said, essentially as nurses, um, doing the work that nurses do, that needs to be recognised. And I support the recognition of that. How we do that, I don't know. And we'll, we'll okay, await what... Okay, but Paul, what about the argument that, you know, nurses know what they're signing up for when they do four years of training they know the first three years are unpaid and that they get paid in the fourth why should that be changed because the current situation simply isn't right and um, that was exposed very badly in terms of the covid crisis where the government which simultaneously was calling for people to clap for them was being paid in the doll to clap for them, then came under enormous pressure to pay them as healthcare assistants at a rate of 14 euros an hour and was forced to concede that in the springtime, um, but now was trying, um, or has removed that and has gone back to free labour for first, second and third years. So it was our motion from Solidarity People for Profit in the Dáil last night, very simply saying that they should be paid for their work. because. You know, Barry talks about a debt of gratitude and recognition, but I think what the nurses, student nurses and student midwives will tell you is that that debt can't be paid in, in claps and empty platitudes. Do, do it has to be paid in money. Do students in the health system get paid? Do student doctors, radiologists or not, do they get paid? No, they also don't get paid. And, and do you want them to be paid? Well, right now we have this very clear issue. Uh, well, in if terms doctors, of, if student I, doctors I, and student oh, radiologists, I, I, do you want absolutely. them to be paid I, as well or look, not? I, I'm... I'm against using free labour to fill in the gaps in our public services and in our health services in particular. That, that's what's currently yeah, happening. What about I have that multiple point, Barry, that it's the use people. of free labour to fill the gaps? Yeah, I, I don't accept that characterisation of it. Um, all, there are lots of people who are, who are trainees of one form or another, be it apprentices or trainee solicitors or whatever it is, and there are different payment regimes for different people. Most of them don't get paid. Um, I think and is that right? Because doesn't that just reinforce a whole system whereby that if you're lucky enough to have privileged parents who can sub you the money for a number of years, well, you'll get the jobs in the future while people who don't come from those backgrounds get excluded because of unpaid internships? No, I don't think it does. And there are a lot. I mean, I worked unpaid as a barrister for many of your many years when I started, and it wasn't. I wasn't supported by my parents. I worked before I became a barrister, and I built up um, the money that put me through the first few years at the bar. I mean, 
it's not easy to set up in any profession um, and we should be making it easier, of course. But while people are training, they are trainees and they have the benefit of the training while they're doing that. So not in all cases is it justified for them to receive um, payment or significant payment. Now, I think in the current circumstance, we've talked about nurses and, and Megan mentioned that during the interview, how they are doing the work of healthcare uh, workers, of healthcare assistants. They're doing the observations and the cleaning and the um, looking after patients. That's tremendously important and it does deserve recognition. There is a payment there for unregistered nurses in their last year. You keep saying um, recognition instead yeah. of pay barrier. Well, actually, I said payment there. I'm just talking about the payment they received in their last year. Um, we put in place a system that meant that those working in their third year, so two years or the, the, the penultimate year before they register, they received a payment as a healthcare worker. That was specifically because they were being used as part of the healthcare system to supplement the, the demand that existed because of COVID. So it's, okay, but they will tell you that 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 is the case all of the time. I mean, that is definitely the case this year, but it's the case all of the time because of the underfunding of our health service, that they are forced to fill the gaps. They're not just there Firstly, standing by the health service. The health service is They're, the best funded health service in Europe, so it's not underfunded, Paul. Let's be clear about that. It doesn't, tell, tell, it doesn't tell mean that. that. No, no, and I'm not, I'm not saying... Some form of a, of a hospital yeah, I'm not saying that there isn't an issue to be, to be dealt with here, but let's not characterise the health service as being underfunded when an awful lot of taxpayers' money funds the health service. Um, and I can argue with you about how that money is spent, but it's not underfunded. There is an issue to be dealt with here. I know that the government, um, the Minister for Health and, and the Tornishta particularly are concerned about this. I know they're anxious to deal with it and I, I hope they'll find a pathway to doing that. But I don't know what the answer to that is, Matt, because I'm not a member of the government, so I can't that's, speak that's, for them. That's just waffle and but trying to avoid the you point. You see, what okay, Paul, Paul, Paul was talking So what the government came out and said today after the backlash, after voting last night against paying, they said, well, we're going to look at it and I'm going to come up with proposals by September 2021. That is an attempt to kick the can down the road, hope that COVID has gone away and that they can ignore this issue because they don't want to pay these student nurses and midwives for the work that they are doing. And that's the bottom line. It's an extremely simple issue. And they're trying to distract, and Barry's so trying to distract. All issues issue. for Paul are simple. But the it's, the it's, simple it's answer is, simple, hang Barry. on a second, Paul, now. All issues for you are simple, because the simple answer always is give people what they want, give people what is popular. It's not always that straightforward. Now, I, I, what I would say to you is that there is an earnest effort. You said, for example, the government doesn't want to pay them. I don't think that's true. I think the government is struggling with the issues around paying them. They are doing that. They've said that they're going to engage with and I look forward to the solution that they're going to bring forward. That's the reality okay. of it. Okay, I want to move to another topic and I want to bring in Paul Miner, Professor of Immunology at Maynooth University, who joins us now via Skype. Uh, Paul, we had Eamon Ryan with us a little bit earlier talking confidently about the rollout of the vaccine. Would you share that confidence given what you're hearing? Yeah, I'd be quite positive. Uh, I think it's really good news. Um, you know, over the last number of days, we've seen the EU sign up to six different vaccines with advanced purchases for, I think, one and a half billion doses. Uh, we're due to get one and just over one percent of them. So that's around 15 million doses. So I think we're in a good place. Obviously, there are challenges, Matt, in terms of rolling this out. But I think generally we're, we're in a good place. And Paul, how aggressively should the government try and have early delivery to the maximum number as quickly as possible? Yeah, obviously, so the, the use is going to be prioritised and those at highest risk, so for example, and those at highest risk to the virus itself will be given priority. So I would imagine that the elderly, the older people in care homes, uh, healthcare staff, and then progressively moving down in age, 
and also targeting those with underlying conditions. So obviously, you know, we should target them as quickly as possible. And who do you think should be giving the vaccine? Should it be uh, general practitioners or should there be specially set up units to do it? I think it'll depend, Matt, it'll depend also on the vaccine. So, for example, there are different challenges. So the one that will most likely be rolled out first will be the Pfizer-BioNTech one. Uh, some of the challenges associated with that relates to its storage. So it needs to be stored at ultra-cool temperatures down at minus 70, minus 80 degrees. So it really depends in terms of what facilities can cope with that type of infrastructure. So for that case, we may be looking at situations where maybe certain GP, maybe large GP networks may be able to facilitate that. May have to set up maybe some uh, mass vaccination centres. So you know we obviously have to work around uh, those uh, challenges. Whereas some of the other ones coming likely on stream maybe in another number of months, maybe early springtime, they may be more easy to administer. For example, the AstraZeneca Oxford one that doesn't um, doesn't necessitate that cold storage. So it's quite stable at uh, four degrees. So again, that that would probably be easier to roll out. So it really depends, I think, on the specific vaccine and the requirements around it. I want to go back to Paul Murphy. How supportive will you and the opposition be of what the government is planning to do in relation to vaccines? Well, it's a question of how effectively they manage to roll out the, the vaccine. Obviously, um, a full extensive rollout of the vaccine, first of all to vulnerable groups and frontline front workers, and then to the entire population is an essential part of returning to some sort of, sort of, of normality. Um, I mean, the additional points that I would make is I think it's vital that there is no profiteering by these pharmaceutical companies. Um, they've been the recipients of massive public funds in terms of funding the research for these vaccines, literally tens of billions of dollars on a worldwide scale. They've been now indemnified by various governments for any you know, lawsuits or whatever that would uh, result from the vaccine. So, Do you have an issue with that, given the importance of what's going well, on? I, what I think is it's vital that they're not allowed to profit from it, that, that they have to sell at cost price. I think it would be outrageous if that these you know, massive multinational corporations, very rich multinational corporations, are able to suck in public money on the one side, able to ensure that they aren't at liable for any credit, costs. Are you glad that we have these massive well, multinational corporations with the resources and the will to actually do what they've done so quickly? Uh, so I, I'm really glad that we have scientists uh, that are capable of doing the research and finding these. Um, I think what you'll find is that actually the way that the pharmaceutical industry is constructed with various companies competing with each other as opposed to openly publishing research and data is a problem and actually holds us back in terms of the speed of vaccine development, etc. I mean, there's some striking figures. the speed figures. of this vaccine development has been absolutely, absolutely extraordinary. Because and public, there has been an enormous be, amount of cooperation. Because of massive public funds uh, pumped in. But I mean, I, I read there's some great books about um, vaccines, about these things. One interesting the, the, the figure, manner, which, which just, just one point. The, Pfizer spends more on advertising than they do on research. That's a consequence of organising for The, the, the manner in which they have developed the vaccines hasn't changed. There may have been funding from public coffers around the world to help them pay for the research and development, but they've, and, and they've provided the expertise and, and the professionals to do it. But they have also done it amongst themselves and the manner in which they develop, develop it hasn't changed. The reason they've been able to do it so quickly, as I see it, is because so much uh, money and so many resources have been expended on doing it. That 
but that you're talking about the model in which they develop them being pro problematic. The reality is that everybody in the world will profit from the fact that we have a pharmaceutical infrastructure, particularly in this country, that is replete with professionals and people who know what they're doing, who are dedicated to the profession and are supported by a corporate structure, which you but may object no, no, to, none of but what at the same time anything provides. to do with the corporate structure. And in well, fact, the you, corporate you structure... You are raising the corporate well, structure as Pfizer, Pfizer does its research over here and it doesn't publish it in public papers. And then the other companies do theirs over here and they race well, to get there and to get by going back profits. to Paul Moyna. Paul, would you be concerned about the possibility of profiteering by the pharmaceuticals who make these vaccines? I certainly wouldn't like to see that, Matt, but I probably would agree with Barry. So, for example, if you look at the time frame for the development of this, it's absolutely unprecedented. The fastest we've ever developed a vaccine previously was for months, and that took uh, four years. One of the main reasons why that time period has been truncated is really due to the enormous amount of funds and collaboration that has allowed typically a process that would be done sequentially, frequently, where before moving on to the next phase, you would have to show that the first one was successful. But again, with the resources were available frequently, a number of those phases were done in parallel. And now we reached a situation where only like last week, we found out that a number of these vaccines were effective. And now we already have them ready to go because yes, it was a risk that was taken to manufacture these even before we knew if they were going to be effective or not. But the fact now that they are effective and we have doses ready to go, again, I think would justify the approach because the need is so, so high. Paul, thank you very much. We'll leave it there. Thank you, Paul Moyna, Barry Ward and Paul Murphy. Now, after the break, Zara King will be here to look back at Ireland under lockdown with some interesting revelations. And you'd imagine after four years, you know, getting to the exit and getting out should be a sense of great relief. And I'm sure in normal circumstances it might be. I felt a real sense of loss, actually. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Welcome back. Well, we're joined now by Zara King of Virgin Media News. Now, Zara, we've all been living with COVID-19 in different ways, but you've done in a way the small group of you almost uniquely, almost daily interaction with NFET and the HSE. And tell us about the documentary that you're making as a result of that. 
Yes, Matt. So I suppose uh, since the very first case was confirmed on the 29th of February, I went into the Department of Health that night. It was a Saturday night at nine o'clock in the evening and I've kind of been there since. And it's funny because it's a building I've probably been in a handful of times before the pandemic and now we're there almost every day. Um, so yeah, I mean, the decision to make the documentary kind of happened in, in mid to late summer where we had kind of decided that we were reporting every day on the figures and the statistics, but really I wanted to hear about the lives and the families that had been affected by the pandemic. So the documentary, um, Ireland Under Lockdown COVID-19 Stories, is mainly a focus on family life and how the pandemic affected people with a specific focus on families who lost loved ones. So you have to remember that these are people who watched what was happening unfolding in Wuhan in January, saw uh, cases coming through Italy into Europe and then not realising that this would eventually come into their own homes and take someone away from those homes. So as those people prepare to face into their first Christmas without those loved ones who won't be at the table this year, and it's been a year first for a lot of these families, we wanted to hear their personal stories. And I mean, for a lot of them, Matt, to be very honest with you, it's still very raw. Like even people who died in the early stages back in March and April, you're talking nine or 10 months since this happened. Um, and for a lot of them, they're still quite numb and they're still trying to come to terms with how shocking this has really been for them. So, And there's also a lot of people living what they call long COVID, the consequences yeah. even after recovery. But you did also focus on the people who have become very much public figures and very well-known faces over the last nine months who you've come to know well through the briefings. But you got more detailed interviews with them as well, likes of Tony Olin. Yeah, that's right. So Dr Tony Olin has sat down and given us a very open and a very frank interview, actually. And he has spoken in detail about his thoughts and his feelings around those particular uh, big decision-making moments. So they talk about, a lot of people might know about this room, room 61631, uh, I should say, in the Department of Health. And it's sort of like the central meeting point where a lot of the meetings happened. A lot of the conversations uh, took place and decisions that ultimately changed all of our lives happened inside that one room. So it was really interesting to kind of hear the types of conversations that were going around and people's thoughts. In fact, we actually have a clip we can take a listen to uh, Dr Tony Hulan just telling us a bit about those early stages of the pandemic. Dr Hulan, what were your thoughts in those early stages in the beginning when we could see what was unfolding and happening in Wuhan? My earliest memory is reading a little bit about this and some of the medical and other sources of information that we have seeing a little bit about it in the media. I remember being out for my daughter's birthday, which is the second week in January, um, and uh, being a little bit preoccupied. Many people's memories are milestones around the first case in Ireland or the lockdown. But from our perspective, it was back into January when we were watching what was happening, emerging from Wuhan. In China, it just, it, it seems very far away. To see it in, in Italy, to see it sort of right on our doorstep was, was scary. Italy was, um, was certainly a game changer, for me at least anyway, and a real eye-opener. Really we knew it was only a matter of time before we began to see cases occurring in this part of the world, in Europe, and once that then happened, the potential for it to appear here as a case. Uh, I think it was about six weeks or so before we saw a case actually on Irish shores, but by then there had been a substantial amount of cases already in, in Europe. Sarah, you also got an interesting revelation out of the outgoing health minister, Simon Harris. Yeah, so there's a lot of things, Matt, that actually don't make the documentary as such, and we had hours and hours of footage. So we've made the decision to produce a six-part podcast series uh, with the hours of tapes that don't make the documentary. So uh, Room 631, Ireland's COVID crisis, will be released uh, sometime next week. But also among those conversations were uh, chats with the outgoing health minister and then the, at the time, incoming health minister, Stephen Donnelly. Let's take a listen to what both of them had to say about that big job of health minister during the global pandemic. Pandemic. Was it difficult for you to step back from being the health minister or were you sort of ready at that stage after a long couple of months or how did you feel about that? 
I was resigned to the fact that I wasn't going to be the health minister. And in normal political times, you're meant to be delighted, apparently, if you're no longer going to be the health minister, because, you know, people make pejorative comments about how difficult a job it is. You're always in the firing line. You make mistakes. I made loads. And you'd imagine after four years, you know, getting to the exit and getting out should be a sense of great relief. And I'm sure in normal circumstances it might be. I felt a real sense of loss, actually, um, that, again, perhaps I didn't realise I was going to feel. Um, and not, not personal loss, I, I don't mean it like that at all, but just, just connections. Like, I deeply care for the people in the Department of Health now that I've been working on with this. You stepped into a health minister role in the middle of a global pandemic. What's, what's it like to have to take on a job like that right now? Well, I asked for the job, so, <laughs> so I, I, I certainly have no complaints. I mean, hand on heart, it, it's the greatest professional honour of my life to be able to get up every morning and come to work um, to try and, you know, help steer the country through COVID and help, you know, build a great healthcare system is, is an amazing honour. Um, it, it is intense. It's a huge challenge. I think stepping into the Minister of Health role in, in peacetime, you know, is a fair challenge for everybody. Doing it during a pandemic, obviously, is, um, is full on. Uh, there's no question about it. But there's a lot of experience at the cabinet table. So there's three, pre, well, including me now, there's four health ministers or ex-health ministers at the cabinet table. The Taoiseach obviously was, uh, was, was Minister for Health and has a big passion for health. The, the Taunish that has been uh, a Minister for Health. So there's a, there's a lot of experience around the cabinet table. Sarah, one thing strikes me looking at all those clips, where are the female decision makers? Well, actually, Matt, I suppose a lot of people mightn't realise that uh, behind the scenes there are quite a lot of high-level um, high women working behind the scenes. In fact, uh, for a long time, the Department of Health Communications team was entirely staffed by women, including the director of the team, uh, Deirdre Waters, who features in the documentary. Uh, she's a civil servant. She's never given an interview before, but to hear her insights are really phenomenal. I mean, Deirdre was called to the first meeting about COVID-19 by Tony Houlihan back in January when he was seeing what was happening in Wuhan, and she's actually the first person we're going to see in the documentary on Tuesday night, 9 o'clock, Virgin Media 1. And, um, you know, her insights are really spectacular because she was really on the edge. And she but was are there others? Because there is this argument that in other countries like New Zealand, which done better, is because there's so many female leaders. I mean, yeah, there are women working in these departments, in the Department of the Taoiseach, in the Department of Health, who are key and they are very influential. I mean, at the end of the day, things like teaching people how to wash their hands, cough etiquette, they all came from Deirdre Waters, but people don't realise that that was a strategy devised by her. Name of the documentary again? It is Ireland Under Lockdown, COVID-19 Stories. It's Tuesday night at nine on Virgin Media One. That, thank you very much. Thank you for all the time we've had tonight. My thanks to Zara King, to all our guests. And also a reminder that tonight's show is now available as a podcast as well. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back on Today FM tomorrow afternoon, back here at 10pm next Tuesday evening. For now, good night and stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.